teaching series across the whole church. And this is something that we're looking at in both congregations, uh, the youth and the kids club, and also following it up with studies in the community groups. And it started a year and a half ago when we went away for an away day as senior leaders and decided to have another look at our um, mission and value statement as a church, which had stood us in great stead for um, a great number of years. But we felt it was time to relook and refresh um, the whole um, statement about who we are and what our key values are. And um, as a result of a year and a half's work and looking at these, we're ready to present them to you this morning. And um, we're going to do, like I say, an eight-week series with a two-week break in the middle because on the 5th of April, we're going to have a baptism service. So if, you're, if you've not been baptized, um, we really encourage you to consider that. And there's a, a Thursday evening, I can't remember the day, I think it's in the notices, a couple of weeks before that, where we're going to have an, a, an evening exploring what the Bible says about baptism. So if you've not been baptized, feel free to join us on that evening, and then we'll have a baptism service on the 5th. The 12th of April is Easter Sunday, and so we'll be having a fantastic celebration family service on that day. So the, the eight-week series will, will start and run up till then and then carry on afterwards. Plus, if you're in a community group, um, you'll be studying these values in greater detail and really nailing down what does it mean to us as a church and what does it mean to me as an individual. To kick us off and introduce us to this, um, this whole thing is Steve. So would you like to welcome him? Good morning, everybody. Am I coming through all right? Good. <clears throat> you probably uh, realise there's been a few little technical problems with the sound this morning. We apologise for that. There's a bit of popping going on. It's not me, it's the microphone. And uh, also, the school's equipment here in the centre isn't working, which has made a little bit of a disproportionate balance of sound. So apologies for those over here and here who've been deafened, and apologies to you in the middle at the back that can't hear anything. Um, I'm sure it all works out in kingdom terms. <laughs> so with Helen's uh, introduction there, thank you for that. I'd like to read a passage of scripture which I think will remain foundational through this next, well, today and then a further seven weeks as we go through this series on our mission uh, and, and our values. So um, the reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm starting to read at verse 10. And these, of course, are the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, who are uh, not perhaps the best church in the New Testament. Unlike the Thessalonians, who were a model church, you could say that this church was at the other end of the scale with all kinds of stuff going off in it. So Paul talks very clearly and very persuasively about the need for foundations and what those foundations are. So that's the background to the passage, and here it is, 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen from the church there? If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, 
their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Paul is there laying the foundation on which others will build a church in Corinth. Some years ago, as part of my uh, wider set of responsibilities, I was asked to go to a Churches Together meeting in a certain town. Um, It was not this town, I hasten to add. And I sat there and we went through the agenda and it was okay, as those meetings often are, until we got, of course, to the end item, which is any other business. And you've probably noticed, have you, that when you get to that one, you're probably about a quarter of the way through the the meeting. Any other business items are usually quite long. But the very last any other business item was from one of the leaders of one of the churches who proposed that at our next meeting together, we should invite the leader of the spiritual church in the town. You're supposed to take an intake of breath there. I've got to lay some foundations here, haven't I? I (laughs) And really, from that point on, I began to wonder whether people really understand church at all, because, of course, the the, the values and the things that a spiritual church would do are so uh, directly opposed to what we would stand on and believe in. But somewhere, there was a lack of understanding about these things. And therefore, as we go on to this series, which will take eight weeks, it's really important today, I think, that we affirm amongst ourselves exactly what Paul's foundation was, which was Jesus Christ, and what we, as the others that Paul refers to, are building onto those foundations. And that is really important. I'm going to pop up a little diagram here, which is kind of the culmination of everything we've been working towards for 18 months, probably a little bit more than that, actually. And if you look at that diagram in itself, it may not mean that much to you, but we very much hope that by the end of the eight weeks, we'll have taken that to pieces and uh, spoken biblically and in kingdom value, kingdom terms, the values uh, that we hold dear as our church. But because the following seven weeks in the series are going to be dedicated to those pillars that you can see, uh, today... I'm going to be dealing with the bottom bit, which is the text there, and the top bit, which is the roof, pointing upwards towards God. And uh, we'll make all that really clear as we go along. So the first thing that Paul says, the next, oh, I can advance this one, can't I myself? The first thing that Paul says, I don't know if you can see that very clearly, is that no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. I think we're all okay with that. We know the Lord Jesus Christ to be our rock, our bedrock, our sure foundation, our cornerstone, and we build on him. And every time you come to church, whether it be in here, the 915, or the community groups, or the kids club, or the youth, you will hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sure and firm foundation. It's not me, honestly. That's the... <laughs> 
So Paul says, I laid that foundation as a wise builder, which others are now building on. And it's really interesting as we look at the terminology that Paul uses in this passage, the wise builder and the foundations, because they are exactly the same terminologies that Jesus Christ himself used in Luke 6 when he talked about the wise man building his house upon the rock. And the rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm. And I'm showing my age now, aren't I, with songs that I really think the band ought to bring back. But that's another, another argument. So Paul is saying really words that the church would understand because they had the teachings of Jesus that like Jesus said a wise man needs to build his house upon a rock so too a church needs to build its house upon the rock and it needs to be sure of its foundation the bedrock of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the words that Paul uses for foundation, it is this word themelios, the Greek word which is used 15 times in the New Testament by Jesus when he talked about the wise man, by Paul here as he's looking at the foundations. And these are not any old foundations. There's building work going on around where I live and the way they do foundations these days is they dig a a six foot trench and they pour concrete into it and that is the foundation. But the Bible talks about something far stronger the bedrock foundation, the word themelios, which means strong, immovable, and reliable. And that is the foundation that we build our church upon, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, that word themelios is also used in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14 when we look at the foundations of the new Jerusalem, the walls of the heavenly place that we shall live will be built upon that bedrock of Jesus Christ. So there is the ultimate bedrock foundation of what we build on as a church. But Paul said, didn't he, that others now build upon that. But each of us should build with care. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, that would have been the cedar wood that they used in the temple, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. And you know, I guess, that the Old Testament temple, when you read about the Old Testament temple, you're seeing a prophetic picture of the New Testament church, of we here today. And we look at how the temple was constructed physically and we begin to get an idea of how God wants us to create the church to build on those foundations spiritually. And in the Old Testament temple, things like gold, silver, costly stone and cedar wood were the things that were acceptable, really expensive, really well put together by anointed craftsmen But the things that would not be allowed in the temple as part of its fabric would have been the straw and the hay. And Paul is saying, don't build straw and hay into your churches. We need them to be built with costly materials, gold, silver, stone, and wood. And maybe as this series goes on, we can look at exactly what that means to us in a practical sort of way. 
So with the bedrock of Christ's sacrifice now in place in that foundation strap line that we had, we now have others, that's us, that Paul refers to, to start to build. So what is the first thing that we build upon that foundation for Riverside? Well, it's summarized in this next slide. And you'll find that in a lot of our paperwork to come. We think this of ourselves. It's true now, but we want to see it even more so, that we are a lively, passionate family church working out what it means to love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfill our potential in him, and make a difference locally, nationally, and internationally. And as we go through this, this series and you see this diagram explained, we're going to try and examine the ways that we can attain that piece at the top, that we connect to God, each other, and our world through these pillars which hold it up. All that will become clear, so please don't worry about it at the moment. But the next seven talks in this series will deal one at a time with each of these pillars. So we'll be looking at being word-rooted as a church, We'll be looking at what it means to be spirit-led as a church, worship-filled, prayerful, relational, disciple-makers, and being outward-focused. And it's probably not until the end of the series that everything will come and hopefully be crystal clear at that time. So there are our foundations, and it's now my task to talk about the roof section and the infills will be done in the weeks to come. This is our aspiration. We want our church, in simple terms, to be a church that connects well to God, that connects well to each other, and connects well to our world. And we spent ages talking about the actual wording of these things, and we put in our world instead of the world, because of course the world's a bit abstract and can mean anything. Our world, is really what we will be doing tomorrow morning or this afternoon and the way we live our lives and the people we touch. So that is what we're meaning when we're talking about connecting to our world. So let's look at these three things one at a time. Firstly, what it means to connect to God. This will be no surprise to most people. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, Nicodemus being one of the Um, religious leaders came to Jesus at night presumably because he didn't want to be seen by anybody and he said what must I do to be saved and Jesus answered you could say that he said what must I do to be properly connected with God and saved and he was saying Jesus replied very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again we believe that a person is not born saved Something has to happen in every person's life for them to be made acceptable to God. It's called being born again. It basically means that we are born of the Spirit of God and reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have a friend who is a missionary and he posted something on Facebook this week which I'd like you to have a look at because this just says it all, really. There is a picture of the Old Testament door frame and lintel covered in the blood of a lamb. And the caption underneath it, for those listening on media, says simply this, the Lord did not check who inside the house was worthy. He checked for the blood on the doorposts. Not one of us is worthy 
Only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Now we completely believe that's what the Bible teaches, actually from cover to cover. It's what we believe here. People need to be born again. And we, our mission, as we shall see later on, is to make that happen and, and uh, enable that to happen in so many people's lives. We not only need to connect to God to be born again, we need to connect to God all the time. And I would say again, we've said it so many times, read your Bible every day, pray to God every day in whatever way and in whatever context that is for you and however that works for you. And also meet with God by meeting together. This is just so important and I talked a little bit about this in the earlier 915 service. In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read about something called the preparation day. In the text of the Bible, it carries a capital P for preparation, and it carries a capital D for day. It was a thing, an important thing. And what it was is that people used the preparation day, which was the day before the Sabbath. I believe now, I'm in a chat with Robin, it's now the hours leading up to the Sabbath, which starts at sunset on Saturday evening. And that preparation time was so that when the Sabbath started, it was wholly dedicated to God. And it brought my mind back to, I guess Rog will remember it, the days when Grenville used to look after us when we were teenagers in this church. He would say to us, and he said to me very clearly, and he was able to talk very clearly, very sort of specifically and with a lot of authority. He said to me, be careful what you do on a Saturday night because you need to be fresh for the Sabbath to worship God. And you know that's never left me. And it's not just because I happen to lead and, and need to be fresh in that sense. I've always wanted to make sure that I'm ready to worship on Sunday undistracted. And that's just been a thing that I've carried and I, I propose that to you as well. So even now, on a Saturday afternoon, I'll be getting my clothes together and making sure that I've got a pair of socks without any holes in it. And I've been caught out like that a few times and had to quickly wash socks. And I was saying earlier, I'd dry them with the hairdryer. It's quite good if you, if you put the sock over the end of the hairdryer, but I, I have blown some holes in socks by, by doing that as well. But, and I know it's funny, but seriously, how many times do we turn up at church like this? You know, we couldn't find the car keys. We couldn't do that. The kids were playing up. We hadn't got the kids' clothes ready. There was a preparation day in the, old, in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. They got themselves ready mentally, physically, spiritually for the Sabbath because it is the desire of God that there is a Sabbath. We think in New Testament times that there isn't. There is. God requires us to observe the Sabbath. And it's so important and we enjoy those times together, don't we? They need to be, as Grenville said to me, the thing that affects the rest of my week, not the rest of my week affecting the Sabbath. And I think that is just so important. And I know it's a challenge, and I know that you won't hear this kind of teaching in a lot of churches, but it's the Bible. Our best and most 
unpolluted picture of church is found in the book of Acts. And I'm now moving on to the second part, connecting with each other. The problem is, of course, over 2,000 years, church has become copies of copies of copies of copies of copies until we've lost something of the original intent which is expressed in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the believers met together, worshipped together, prayed together, fasted together, laughed together, cried together, and they lived together. Why? Well, because there is a power in togetherness, and it's the will of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul says, when you are assembled, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. When you are assembled. The writer of Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. What's that day? It's that day when Christ will return. As you see it approaching, take it even more seriously to be together. I was watching the news, I think it was yesterday morning, and in a quarter of an hour section of news clips, whilst I had my cup of tea, I saw the news about wars, about rumors of wars, about pestilence, viruses, natural disasters, the floods, all in a tiny section. The very things that Jesus said, when you see these things, know that the day is approaching. So what's this writer of Hebrews saying? As you see the day approaching, take the church more seriously. Make it your priority. I'm sorry if I'm treading on corns here because this is not in our culture these days. But we can be different and we can put the Sabbath and what should happen on the Sabbath as the very thing that affects the rest of our lives. And I think that we should. I came across this picture this week. This is a picture of a church in the Philippines. I don't know how well you can see that, but it's flooded up to, I don't know, what will that be, a foot, two feet deep. Yet the congregation is there. I showed this in the earlier service and it occurred to me when I said, I think I'd be there. I do, I think I'd be there. It occurred to me that I'd be standing on the platform so I'd be all right. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul again says, the body is made up of many parts. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I don't need you. We do need you. Yes. We need each other. You bring a part as a living stone that makes up the body of this church that is unlike any other. We need you. We're all different, but we're strong in diversity. And as you look through the scriptures, you see the church described in many different pictures. There's the picture of the church being the body of Christ, a picture of the church being the bride of Christ, the family of God, the temple and the flock. And it's true that all those descriptions really attract the attention of different people. There are those that love the idea as the, of the church as a body. They're concerned with the health and the vitality of the body being together. Then there are those that love the idea of the church as a bride. They want to see purity in the church. People striving to be Christ-like. 
And then there are those that love the picture of the church being a family because they're strong on relationships. Those that like to see the church as a temple, a place of prayer and sacrifice being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those that love the idea of the church being a flock, hearing the direction of Jesus, the chief shepherd. And all those different personalities and dynamics come together and make one whole which we're supposed to be. The church needs you, and you are part of the church. If I cut my hand off today, which I'm not going to do, and left it on that shelf over there, what would it be like when I come back next week? Waiting for you. Waiting for me. I thought you were going to say waving, waiting. (laughs) Is it possible to be a Christian without being part of a church? I'm not going to answer that, but I know what I think. If it is because of the vastness of the grace of God, I certainly don't think it's how he intended it to be. All the teaching through the New Testament is the importance of the gathered body of Christ, and I would ask as we go through this that it is looked at again. Also, what are you building your part with? Is it straw? Is it hay? Or is it actually costing you? How's your gold? How's your silver? How's your costly stones? Where are they? The church, unfortunately, on planet Earth, cannot survive without them. It's challenging. I know, isn't it? So we've looked at the connecting to God. We've looked at the connecting to each other. And finally, we're commissioned, instructed, commanded to connect with our world. In Matthew 11 and verse 28, there's that wonderful verse where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What a lovely verse that is. And in the days when Christian bookshops were on most high streets, you could go into most Christian bookshops and find a little carved plaque with those words on it. And they are lovely words. But you know, Jesus talked about going a lot more than he talked about coming. Of course we need to come to Christ. Of course we need to be born again. But we have a mission to accomplish once that has happened. And that involves going. Matthew 10, verse 7 As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. That's a commission for the church. Luke 10 verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. And you wouldn't find this one carved on a plaque. Go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. And do not greet anyone on the road. Why does Jesus say that? Because he wants us to have almost tunnel vision on this thing called mission. It's got to be important. It's got to be what we see everywhere we look, the mission, and he doesn't want us distracted with the other things. There is a serious command from God, from Jesus, 
that we go. And of course, the Great Commission, and I finish with this, in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. We don't do this alone, my friends. I heard someone speaking the other day, it was so good. He said, that's where the miracles happen. Not so much in here, but when we go out there. And I found that to be true as well. So that's it for today by way of a sort of introduction to the whole thing. Over the next seven weeks, different speakers will be talking about the pillars, the things that make the mission possible, the things that make us distinctive as a church. And I really hope that you both enjoy this series and feel also, in the right measure, challenged by it too. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>